Good morning, UPC. As always, it's a joy to be here this morning and to bring you God's Word. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. But as you're turning there, several years ago I read a book on parenting by Paul David Tripp. It's entitled Parenting. 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend it. It was either in this book or another. I can't remember exactly which one, but I think it was in this parenting book. That Paul David Tripp told of a story of a time when he was a kindergartner teacher. He was a kindergartner teacher for a little while in a Christian school. And a mother came up to him and asked him if little Susie could have a birthday party in the classroom. He said, yeah, that's, that's fine. Just make sure you invite all the students that they know about it and are aware and can bring presents and things. She said, yes, of course. So little Susie has this party, and there's a table off to the side, and this table slowly but surely grows and grows, and there's this huge mound of presents. But everyone else, they get party favors, right? They get this little bag, and it has a grand total of two Tootsie Rolls, a lollipop, and a plastic whistle. And uh, little Johnny, one of the kids in the class, he looks at his slim pickings, and then he looks at the mound of presents. He's not happy. And he decides to voice that he's not happy. And uh, no one seems to pay attention to him. Everyone's paying attention to Susie. And so he thinks, well, I'll just get louder. And so he gets louder. He voices his frustration. And finally, one of the mothers had had enough and pulled him off to the side. And either patiently or impatiently, I'm not sure. But she said, Johnny, this is not your party. And that right there is the human problem, isn't it? We're prone to think that this is our party. We're prone to think that we're the center of the universe. But Psalm 2 comes to us this morning and it reminds us it is not your party. And you know what? That's actually good news this morning. It's good news because we need something in our lives bigger than ourselves. And so God the Father invites us to come to his Son this morning. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this psalm. So before we read, let's go before him in prayer and ask for his blessing upon our time. Oh Lord, we thank you in advance for what you are going to do this morning through your word. I pray that you would do mighty things through your word. I pray that you would build up your church. I pray that the lost would hear the good news of Christ this day. I pray your word would comfort us, challenge us, grow us. I pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is take words and change them into life-changing power. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. Do your great work. May you be honored and glorified through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. I'd ask you all to give your special attention to the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word given to us that we might know the living and true God and grow closer to him. This is Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. In him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 2 this morning is what theologians call a messianic psalm. Messianic psalm is just a fancy way of saying that this psalm was written to be about the coming Messiah. And we don't know when this psalm was written. Perhaps it began as a royal psalm. There are royal psalms in the book of Psalms. A royal psalm is a psalm mainly about the king of Israel, king of Judah. But we know from Jewish history that this psalm, in particular, over time, took more and more messianic overtones. And that's how the New Testament author saw this psalm. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4, do you remember the prayer of God's people? Right after Peter and John had been persecuted and they came back and they're, they're asking, why do the nations rage against you and your anointed one? They saw the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how are we going to look at this psalm this morning? How are we going to break down this structure? Well, thankfully, this structure actually is already broken down quite nicely. The structure, it, it follows into four different subsections, each with three verses each. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at each of these four subsections, and we'll take them one at a time. Hope you have your Bible still open. Be looking at it throughout the sermon. Look with me, if you would, at the first three verses again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away. This psalm begins with asking the question, why? Why do the nations do this? Why do they set themselves against God and against his anointed, Jesus Christ? Does it ever seem strange to you that people have a problem with Jesus? I mean, Jesus was meek. He was humble. He was all about love, right? He told us to love God and love those around us. Doesn't that seem like it's a message people could get behind? I mean, even the Beatles said all we need is love, right? Where is the rub? Well, I'll tell you this morning, if you only take part of Jesus, there will be no rub. There will be no rub. In the 1980s and the 1990s, about 150 scholars and laymen formed what they called the Jesus Seminar. You ever heard of this? These were uh, liberal scholars. They did not believe that the Bible was the word of God, but they thought that the Bible contained some truths in it. And so they decided they were going to find out what Jesus, quote, really said. And they did this by voting. They were given a whole bunch of beads. They were given red beads, pink beads, gray beads, and black beads. And if they read something that they really think Jesus said, then they voted with a red bead. If they came across something they said, you know, Jesus probably said this, but I'm not quite sure, then they voted with a pink bead. If they came across something they said, you know, I don't think Jesus said this, but maybe there's some elements of truth here, they voted with a gray bead. And if they thought that Jesus didn't say it at all, then they voted with a black bead. Well, you can imagine how the voting went. If there was anything that they did not like, it was black. If there was anything that they could get behind, they voted red and, and so on. What if we were to do this? What if we did not believe in the Bible and we were to read through and we were to say, you know what, I like that, I'm going to vote red here. I don't like that, I'm going to vote black here. What would you end up with? You'd end up with Jesus who was a safe version who you could control. You'd end up with a, a Jesus who's not the real Jesus, but one that you could get behind and he'd never challenge you. He'd never make you feel uncomfortable. And liberal scholars do this all the time. For example, they take out Jesus' miracles because they don't believe in the supernatural. They take out Jesus' exclusive claims. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, they take it out. They want to believe that there are many ways to God, not just through Christ. And people try to discount all the parts of Jesus that make any kind of claims on their lives. And all that is left are all the parts they already agree with. 
And so they live their lives exactly how they want to live them. If that is your Jesus this morning, there will be no rub. You will not say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But I assure you this morning, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible makes demands upon your life. Did you know that? He demands that you repent of your sins. He demands that you die to yourself, that you take up your cross and follow after him. He requires you love your enemies. That you be obedient to him. He tells you to even pray and love your enemies. Well, how do the nations respond when they hear things like that? You're not the boss of me. How dare you tell me how to live my life? This is my life, and I'm going to live it the way I see fit. You see, the goal of their rebellion, the goal of casting off, is they don't want the lordship of God in their life. They want to be the lord of their own lives. My friends, do you know that's the inclination of our hearts as well? Until Jesus heals us? Well, how does God look upon this? Is he quaking in his boots? Is he biting his fingernails saying, oh no, look how they're rejecting my son? No. Look at verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I want you to imagine with me a, a group of five-year-olds. Okay? And, and these groups of five-year-olds are the most, maybe the oddest, the most strange five-year-olds you probably know. Uh, because I, I have no idea what their parents are telling them at home. But I want you to imagine these five-year-olds have decided that they're going to overthrow the United States government. Okay? They've decided the, the government is no longer fit to run this country, and they are going to lead the charge. They are going to lead this country. Okay? Well, now imagine that the FBI finds out about this plot of the five-year-olds. Is the FBI going to be scared? Are they going to be like, they might be able to pull this off? No, right? They might think it's funny. They might think it's cute. They're not going to be scared. But I will tell you this. Those five-year-olds have a better chance of overthrowing this government than anyone has a shot at thwarting God's plans. And so God laughs. So God laughs. 
He also speaks to them in wrath and terrifies them in his fury. Now, I want you to know that God is so gentle and so kind with those who rebel against him. He is long-suffering, but his patience does have limits. Spurn Jesus Christ for long enough, and there will only be wrath. I want to read you a few verses from Nahum chapter 1. Nahum was a prophet, and he was called to prophesied against uh, Nineveh. You guys remember Nineveh, right? Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was wicked, but in God's mercy, he sent Jonah to preach against their their wickedness, and they repented. They heard of the wrath that was to come, and they turned from their sin, and God relented. But their repentance didn't last. At least not for that long, because in less than 100 years later, they returned to their evil ways, and God gave these words to Nahum regarding Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. Is it not a fearful thing to find yourselves in the hands of an angry God? If you have no Savior, you have no hope. But I want to remind you this morning that this is one reason this psalm was written in the first place. It's to remind us that a Savior would come. In fact, a Savior has come, a King whom the Lord would set upon his royal throne. And this King would be a terror to God's enemies, but he would also be a beacon of hope for God's people. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we get to see a glimpse into a conversation A conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And he tells Jesus Christ, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And he's not speaking of the eternity past. 
right? We, we know that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was not created. He is eternally begotten of the Father. But that's actually not what this verse is talking about. And we know that because the Apostle Paul uses this exact verse in Acts chapter 13. And what we see in Acts 13 is that the resurrection is actually the pivotal changing point in all of human history. According to Romans chapter 1, it was on this day that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Was he the Son of God before this? Yes, he was. But in some way, in some special way, God singles out that day in particular and says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it's because of this exalted position that Jesus receives, right? He receives the name that is above all names. That the Father tells him something else. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Did you know that the nations are already Jesus's? The nations are already Jesus. I was reading a commentary a little while back, and he he points out that these verses should be motivation for us to go to the nations, or at least for us to send others to go in our place. These verses are about missions. And I'm reminded of the Great Commission, the beginning of the words on the wall behind us. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We're to go forth and make disciples of all nations because the nations are already his. Never thought of that before. All authority has been given to him, and so he sends us out to the nations he already owns. Some of you may be familiar with John Piper. John Piper's a theologian, a pastor, huge influence on my life in my 20s. I love what he says about this. It's a pretty famous quote. You might have heard it before. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are whole languages where no one is worshiping Christ in those languages. There are people groups that are lost without hope and they are not worshiping the one true God. There are those in the far reaches of the jungle, in the desert, in the mountains, on islands. There are people who do not love Jesus, and we should be passionate about reaching them. Passionate because we care about them and we long for them, but also passionately because we love Jesus. And they're not worshiping our Savior. We should be praying for them. We should be giving our money to those who are going. 
And perhaps God is calling some of us to go to those where Jesus is unknown because we want to see them praise Christ. Well, the two options that the nations have are this. They can humbly bend their knee. They can love Jesus or they can suffer the consequences. Look at verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you find it difficult to picture Jesus this way? I mean, after all, he came in such humility in his first coming, didn't he? He taught us that we should turn the other cheek, and he practiced it. He was unjustly condemned. He took all of the shame, all of the abuse. He didn't raise a hand. He didn't raise his voice. But I can assure you, this is not how he is going to return in his second coming. The Apostle John wrote of Jesus' triumphant return in, ex, in uh, Revelation 19. Hear these words. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what is going to happen to the nations that reject Jesus Christ. Will your heart go out to them? Will your heart go out to those who still have time to repent and believe in Christ? If so, please heed the words of Jesus when he spoke to his disciples, when he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. Pray for the nations that already belong to him. Our last point this morning comes from the last three verses. Look with them, if you would, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us never forget, friends, that God could have been swift in his judgment against us. He could have decisively executed his justice upon us and he would have been right and blameless to do so. But he was merciful to us. He gave us warnings and he gives us warnings this morning. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What are we to do? Verse 11 tells us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In my 20s, right after college, I went to a church in Atlanta. And there was a man who worked with RUF, uh, Christian uh, College Campus Ministry. And uh, he said this phrase all the time. I I mean, like, all the time. Uh, He he said it so much, it kind of got a little old, but I'm I'm thankful for it because he he grilled it into my head. I'll, I'll never forget it. He would say this all the time. Jesus is not your buddy. He's your king. Jesus is not your buddy. He's your king. Now, it is true that the Bible calls Jesus our friend. He calls us, he is called our elder brother. But we must also remember that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so we shouldn't approach him like our buddy. There's to be a holy reverence, a rejoicing with trembling. If you put your faith in Christ, then know that he is yours and you are his. But you are still to come to him with the respect due his holy name. And lastly, our passage gives us two reasons why we should be wise, warned, and submissive. Look at verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a danger to be avoided and a joy to be experienced. Please, my friends, do not fall into the trap that too many Christians fall into and and they see God the Father as the wrathful one and Jesus Christ as the merciful one. That is not true. That is not biblical. Both are full of mercy. Both are full of holiness and righteousness. And Jesus Christ's patience is long, but is not forever. And Psalm 2 reminds us that his wrath will be quickly kindled on the last day. And so we are called to kiss the sun. It's kind of a strange phrase, right? Kiss the sun. We don't really think of that. What's going on there? Well, in the ancient Near East, when one army conquered another, the conquered king had to bow down and kiss the feet of the victorious king. And if he didn't, he was killed. 
It was a sign of humility. It was a sign of submission. And so we are not to be like the proud nations that rage against God's authority over our lives. Instead, we are to humbly submit to Jesus. We are to kiss the Son. Christianity is full of apparent paradoxes. Do you want to be great? Serve everyone. Do you want to be exalted? Humble yourself. Do you want to live? Die to yourself. The world tells us the only way that we can get ahead is if we look out for number one. If we live life on our terms, we do it our way. Only then will we be truly blessed. But God calls us to turn from self and put our refuge in Christ and in Christ alone. Only there do you find the truly blessed life. Let me conclude with this. The nations rage. For a time they will continue to do so, but they will not win the day. God laughs at their pathetic attempts and his wrath will come upon them, but not this day. Today, the son offers his hands and his feet to be kissed. The same hands and feet that were pierced for our transgressions. Will you be blessed this morning by taking your refuge in him or will you continue to rage and plot in vain? That's the choice before you this morning. You have been warned. May you respond with wisdom and great love. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you are full of mercy and grace and patience. We thank you that you did send a Messiah who lived and died and rose again that we might have eternal life. Lord, show us the folly of when we rebel against you. Show us the folly of our sin. And show us the glories, the beauty, the majesty of your Son. That it might be our joy to bow down and kiss the Son. Oh Lord, do this we pray, that we might be more effective servants of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.